0: well welcome back to crazy faith talk i'm sarah i'm erica
1: and i'm steve
0: so friends we are starting a brand new series today um and while we say it's brand new it's kind of a continuation of a series we did a while back uh a while back we did a series called christianity 101 where we talked about the basics of christianity what it Who is god who is jesus you know all those very basic things and so this week we are starting a series called christianity 202 where we dig a little bit deeper um and maybe still covering some of the subjects we covered in 101 uh and in some ways covering very different subjects because we are going deeper into the christian faith so steve where are we starting this new series
1: Uh, Well, um, maybe like a good bridge between what are the basics and how do we go a little deeper is maybe a a closer reading or a closer look at how we think about scripture. In our um, Christianity 101 series, we got to the point of talking about, hey, there's a thing called the Bible. Hey, Christians have the Hebrew scriptures that we call the Old Testament and the stories of Jesus we call the New Testament, and they're authoritative. Like That that was maybe about the the level we got. But now we thought it would be a good chance... um, uh, to go a little bit deeper and ask questions like, okay, I've got this thing called the Bible, but what are some rules for the road for how to read, how to interpret, how to make sense of what we have here? And so part of this conversation is going to be some basics, like how to do uh, an intelligent, close reading of like that would be applicable to any text. How do, you, how do you read more closely and make the most out of what you're reading? But then there are some things that are particular to reading Scripture that Christians treat as unique or different from say the Harry Potter novels or the Agatha Christie collection or the Narnia books or whatever um that the stories or the, the what we have in the scripture is somehow uniquely authoritative for us, and so we'll talk a little bit about that and then in a in a sort of subsequent conversation, uh we thought maybe next time too we'd talk about um maybe pitfalls when you go off the guardrails and what are ways that reading of Scripture can be harmful or has been read in harmful ways to people before. I hope that'll make more sense in light of what the good rules for the road or guardrails are, though. Here, so maybe what's a good place to start? How would you, you as uh, other religious professionals who are in different contexts, either leading Bible studies or talking to people about how to read their Bibles? What are some like starting points for how we make sense of the scriptures? How we read them?
2: Well, I think first to clarify within your own community, like who you're reading scripture with, what is your scripture? Um, because this might differ from community to community. Um, you know, a lot of um, most Protestant traditions, they have their official canon uh, of what their scripture is. And that's usually, you know, the the Bible and it's Genesis to Revelation without any extra books like the Apocrypha, which is found within the Roman Catholic Church. And that's um, books such as, Uh, I think there's the book of Judith. Is that a book?
1: And and the Maccabees and um, and... Bell and the Dragon and Mm -hmm. yeah.
2: Yeah. So like the the Roman Catholic canon, their scripture has more books in their Bible than most Protestant churches use. And Um, so it's good to like clarify within the community, what is scripture? What is being held sacred And I would argue that most communities have their official scripture, which is what's in the Bible, but then a lot of communities also have unofficial scripture, (laughs) things that they hold in high regard that they treat as very sacred and that they're, you know, infallible, like they are very important and nothing's going to convince them otherwise. So I would say that there's the official scripture and then there's unofficial scripture. Yeah. So it's kind of nice to kind of identify what is scripture for your community.
0: Yeah,
1: I appreciate the way you you frame that in a couple ways, Sarah, like one uh, Protestants and the three of us come from different Protestant traditions have a have a way of thinking about the Bible as there's, you know, the regular Bible and then the other things are extra books but if you came from a tradition that treated the Deuterocanonical or Apocryphal books as scripture, you'd be like, well you Protestants you just have incomplete Bibles and sort of where, where you start from there says something about what you assume the right books are and we can have a whole spin-off conversation about the history of the Apocrypha that those are books that were written and largely tell stories about the 400 year block of time between the last of the Hebrew prophets Malachi and the first of the gospels, that there's just a chunk of history that Protestants know almost nothing about and don't know stories about, don't know how to talk about or think about, but other people do because it's not that nothing happened. It's that those books are not part of Protestant Bibles. And some of that has to do with um, the history of how ancient Judaism treats those books and how ancient Judaism treats them as interesting or helpful, but not to the same level of the Torah or the prophets or something else. So that's a a more inside baseball to how different Christian traditions have treated them. But yeah, your point about different Christian groups talk about what the scripture is differently. And maybe I I go even further, Sarah, when you notice that, that there's a unofficial canon of other things we might add or treat with equal weight, the opposite is true too. Sometimes that with within every Christian tradition, we have a way of making sort of a canon within the canon of like, well, all the Bible is good, but like, we tend to focus on this area. And I'm not sure that's a bad thing. I mean, we all do that. We have a way of uh, selectivity of what things are the center and what things are the periphery. Um, But it's important to be honest about it rather than pretending that you're not doing it or that everybody does it the same.
2: Right. Because I would say that there's certainly Christian groups and communities pastors, individuals who hold the New Testament in higher regard to the Old Testament, and will even, like, argue that the Old Testament rewrites the Old Testament in the ways that, like, oh, we don't have to follow something in the Old Testament anymore because Jesus came along. Right. And that may or may not be true, but, like, it's something to be aware of that different groups are going to treat that differently. Like there are certainly Christian groups today still active who will try to follow the dietary laws in the Old Testament, who will still, um, you know, women will still wear head coverings while while praying. Like there are certainly groups that are doing that and following those laws and commandments while other Christian groups are saying, no, we don't have to do that because of Jesus.
1: And we could even say too that um, I think this is something that maybe we can own as as Protestants um, in different ways. Almost all, I think, of the Protestant denominations have inherited uh, an emphasis in the, even within the New Testament on Paul, as opposed to maybe the general lessons or the general letters or the Gospels. In that, like we have tended to build our traditions on. The justification by grace to faith apart from works of the law is sort of this central piece that is to be sure there in the New Testament, but that's a Paul thing and particular to the issues Paul is dealing with. So um, Protestant Christians who go back to the various 16th, 17th century reformers who in turn are trying to build off of earlier you know, voices like Augustine who are going back to Paul as a particular lens where other Christian groups might say, wait a second, you're missing all the important notice of social justice that they're waiting in the gospel of luke or community care like there's waiting in the book of acts or eschatological hope that they're in revelation and yeah sometimes protestants don't even realize we do the same thing having this sort of focus on uh an erring on the side of paul as opposed to james or paul as opposed to matthew um and again it's not that it's it's wrong to have to be selective wrong to have sort of a, an interpretive key to make sense of the whole, but it's important to be honest and responsible in name. Yeah. We are kind of saying that there's a Canon within the Canon or a sort of a, this is the, this is the heart. This is the center. These are the things that are clearest and other things that are out of focus or at the peripheries. I read a line not long ago from the pastor and writer, Brian Zahn, who says something like um, all, all Bible readers, Uh, do a certain amount of cherry picking the question is whether uh, you are picking good cherries and he says there are some christians out there who just seem to pick all the worst cherries (laughs) um that like there's there's no way uh except always to be doing some interpreting what things are most important what things come i mean jesus does it too right people come to him all the time and say jesus what's the most important commandment and he never says well they're all equally important he will say things like well, here's the number one commandment. Love God with all your heart and strength and mind. And the second one that goes with it is love your neighbor as yourself. That's cherry picking. It's just we're convinced he picks the right cherries.
2: Well, we're hoping that Jesus picks the right, right. cherries, right? Like right. Well, yeah. That, that is a hope as uh, followers of Christ, right? Right. Well, yes, and Jesus. Great cherry picker.
1: That's in some ways, like that's part of what the commitment that you make as a Christian is to say, okay, if I'm a follower of Jesus and not just ordinary person who reads an ancient text like is to say that we let Jesus to some degree point us in the right direction of what he thinks are the things that matter and the things that are less central that to to be a Christian as opposed to just a secular biblical scholar which is a thing you can be is to say I treat what Jesus thinks as important I will I will follow his lead on what's normative or what's the heart of God's will or something like that and not try to build a whole theology around something else that jesus doesn't think is important so yeah jesus also plays a central role in how christians read the bible maybe that's another thing that we should name out loud here too not just what do we count as the bible and know that a protestant bible and a roman catholic bible will have different tables of contents but that christians uniquely um, approach the bible with jesus being somehow important as an interpretive key what might that look like? Do you think like when, 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 when we talk that way, what, what does it mean to say Jesus is somehow important for how we read the Bible?
2: I, I would like to say what well, I think it's not.
1: Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, let's rule some things out.
2: So, um, I think that it is not reading the old Testament, looking for where Jesus is active. Okay. Like being able to point to the old Testament and saying, Oh, yep, that was Jesus. And it's like, not necessarily, because that's not what the author of that book in the Old Testament mm-hmm. intended because they didn't know about Jesus. Mm-hmm. like, for example i'm um there there's that one famous prophecy um about uh, where somebody's like pointing like saying, "Hey, this will happen before the young woman gives birth." and that has been used throughout history as you know the prophecy of Jesus's birth but like mm-hmm. that was like people pointing back and going oh yes this is talking about Jesus when it's more likely that that author was literally pointing to somebody in the room who was visibly pregnant yeah and that gives it a completely different slant and i think that even without that prophecy Jesus is still an important figure. Like, that's not taking mm-hmm. anything right. away from the person right. or divinity of Jesus. Right. Um, I, so yeah, I'm really hesitant to go back and look at things in the Old Testament and say they're talking about Jesus. Because while we fully believe and affirm as Christians, according to the Gospel of John, chapter one, that Jesus has been present since the beginning. I think that the Old Testament was written by specific people in a specific context, and those people didn't know about Jesus. And so I don't think that they were writing about Jesus.
1: And it's probably fair to say there are times when there are voices in the Hebrew scriptures that are talking about something in the future, and they don't quite exactly know what they're talking about. And Christians go, oh, we can tell you about it. It's Jesus. And then there's other times where... a a writing had a particular meaning that was very clear in its original context. And then Christians have used that in different ways. So like your point about that passage from Isaiah, Isaiah seven, maybe the young woman is with child and will conceive Matthew, the gospel writer is well aware of what, isaiah was talking about and doing me matthew's no biblical slouch he surely has read isaiah before Mm -hmm. and then also says okay yep but i'm going to use this and say this is about jesus and he uses that as evidence of the virgin birth in a way that isaiah is not particularly interested in and the hebrew isaiah uses isn't really interested in a virgin birth and that's not really what he's talking about um and it's it's worth us knowing that Our task as modern Bible readers is as much as we can to ask, at least ask the question, what would the original writer have intended? What's going through their mind? But also sometimes we have to acknowledge the New Testament writers sometimes will riff on something and not play by those rules. And that doesn't necessarily mean we have permission then to be sloppy, but it does also recognize the the New Testament writers also don't play by the rules of modern scholarship. And sometimes they go, yep, I know what the original writer meant. And I'm saying it means this in this new context in a way that like we might go, ooh, that makes me a little bit nervous about how that could be misused nowadays. Yes. Um. So one one thing we want to avoid is maybe uh, reading into Old Testament text or Hebrew scripture texts, Jesus, when there's not a warrant for that, or acknowledging if we're doing that, that that's our work of, creative theology it's not something that's there in the text necessarily um what are other things that would be helpful what what do we mean when we talk about jesus being important in how we read scripture
0: i would say how we interpret other things in the new testament does it line up with the way that jesus lived his life and and lived out his ministry
1: okay okay so that there's a sense of jesus being normative uh for how we live as well—is that the, yeah. the gist? Okay.
0: So not only how we live, but also like when we're reading from Paul and other places, um, you know, sometimes it seems like what is written in other places of the New Testament may not completely counter what Jesus has said,
1: mm-hmm. but
0: it has been taken in in ways that Jesus did not live that out, and in, in you know, not the way we we see Jesus acting in the Gospels. Okay. So, like it might have been written with the, with the intention of following Jesus, but we have since in the century since the New Testament was written, have twisted that to mm. to counter kind of what what Jesus intended.
1: do you have any examples in mind?
0: I'm thinking and, and we'll probably get into this more in our second episode in this series, but like some of Paul's teachings about women and leadership okay. Um, you know, people have used that to say that people like Sarah and I can't be pastors, where Jesus very clearly lifted up women in his ministry. Okay. As leaders, as teachers, you know. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we take this statement from Paul, which, in that, if read in the right context, makes sense, but we've mm-hmm. taken that. And we've turned it into something that it's not intended to be. But if we would read it, I think if we would read it in light of Jesus and who were mm-hmm. the first people to pronounce the good news of Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Mm-hmm. Well, it was the women.
1: Yeah.
0: So how how we got to that point over centuries, I don't know. Yeah. But.
1: So it sounds like that. And without making it sound like we have to sometimes pit Jesus against Paul or Jesus against you know but in those moments where it feels like they're at odds it sounds like you're saying a part of the a christian reading is uh whatever where however jesus comes down on things he's somehow more authoritative or central that we read paul in light of jesus rather than Mm -hmm. jesus paul outranks jesus or something like that okay yeah okay
0: okay And Um, i think unfortunately a lot of churches especially in the protestant tradition have mm -hmm. done that over the years where mm -hmm. you know you read Jesus in light of Paul rather than Paul in light of Jesus. Right, right, right.
2: And I would say that that also feels lazy to me.
1: Okay. Because mm-hmm.
2: it it's easy, yes, to take something, uh, because those those uh, pseudo-Paul texts that say, let women be silent, you know, it is somebody out loud, at least in writing, saying... Don't do this Mm -hmm. while ignoring all of the examples in the Bible, both Old Testament, New Testament, whether it's the Gospels, or even other things written by Paul who are more, you know, verified as written by Paul of examples of women in leadership and who have been placed there because of God. Mm -hmm. So like I feel like it's you know, it's you have to look at everything and not just the one sentence that says like super clearly. Do not do this when there's all of these examples of yeah. the opposite.
1: So this this suggests to me kind of indirectly, maybe another helpful principle or, or a truth we have to acknowledge about reading the Bible is that. It's not like a cookbook or a reference manual where there will be one answer given to whatever Mm -hmm. question you bring and there's one place you find the answer. Um, You know, so like if if I want to make pancakes and I get my cookbook out, I will find the one or two recipes for pancakes and I should not look for other insights on pancakes anywhere else. There's one clear answer and nowhere else will address it. The Bible doesn't work like that because the Bible isn't really written as a reference manual that same way. So you'll sometimes have to tease out. So, yeah, this letter in the New Testament says this. But, man, wait a second. When you also consider Jesus does this and there's this and there's this and there's this, that gives us certainly a more complex picture. And answering questions like, are women able to be leaders in the church? has to include all that not just I found one verse and I stopped looking because I found one verse that seemed to simplistically answer it. So maybe an important piece about reading scripture is if we're trying to come to it like it's uh, the reference manual for your car or a cookbook we're doing something wrong that that misinterprets how the scriptures intend to be read Is that a fair thing. Yes. I wonder, too, if we could also add along similar lines about the tension between Jesus and the wider thing that is the Bible, Um, is that it seems to me like Christianity makes a pretty strong case that not just is Jesus an interesting fellow um, and not just someone we're supposed to believe facts about, but that part of God's goal is to make us to be shaped in ways that our love comes to look like and our lives come to look like the way of Christ. Um, And that that then puts some guardrails on, not using the Bible for like permission for stuff that doesn't line up with Jesus. So kind of along lines to point to your point, Erica, of um, just because something happens somewhere in the Bible doesn't mean I've got permission to do it. Uh, but it's more a question of does this fit with the character of Christ, right? So King Solomon has what, 500 wives and 900 concubines. Nobody I know who responsibly reads the Bible goes, oh, therefore the Bible's teaching on marriage is you're allowed to have 500 wives and 900 concubines, you know, because it happens once in the Bible because Solomon did it. That Even though the Bible has other positive things to say about Solomon, it doesn't say, and because Solomon did it, you're allowed to do it, um, but rather it's to say the goal of the Christian faith has something to do with being made in the image or likeness of Christ in some way, not just, I have permission to do it because it happened in the Bible. There's lots of things that you could say are quote unquote biblical, but are not Christ-like. And maybe Mm -hmm. that's an important piece to say. There's plenty of violence and war and genocide and hatred and bigotry in the Bible as well. And it also seems to me like faithful Bible reading isn't to say, well, because it happened, God must be okay with it, but rather... It happened, and God grieves over it, and part of God's response to it is instead a different way, an alternative, the way of Jesus. Um, Are there other things that you think would be helpful or rules of thumb that you use when you're approaching a scriptural text that help you to be a responsible reader, whether it's for leading a Bible study or devotional life or preparing a sermon?
2: I'm sure that we have talked about this in previous series. But I try to always ask myself, what genre is this uh-huh. piece of scripture that I'm reading? And uh-huh. how do I read that type of genre? Uh-huh. Um, because you read a parable very differently than you'll read a letter. Uh-huh. And you'll read a letter very differently than you'll read history. Uh-huh. And um, this, I feel like it's trickier when it's in the Gospels, because the Gospel Gospels will have many different types of genre. Within the genre of gospel, yeah,
1: mm-hmm. right.
2: Because there's plenty of parables, there's plenty of history, all of that found within the gospels. Um, but it's important to know what genre it is to know whether or not I'm supposed to be finding hidden meaning, like symbolism. Like, is there symbolism in here? Is or is this supposed to be read literally?
1: Yeah,
2: because mm-hmm. I do not want to read the entire Bible literally because I don't think that that is how it was intended because that's not how you read certain genres. Right. You yeah. do read them all literally. Right.
1: And I think you've raised a really important point. I've heard sometimes people talk about the difference between taking the Bible seriously and taking it literally. And that sometimes to take it seriously is to know when it doesn't intend to be taken literally. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, when um the psalmist talks about the sun racing across the sky like a runner or being covered in God's wings the right way to treat those is that's poetry that's intended to be understood as figurative language not the bible is teaching the sun has legs and it runs because the bible says so or God has wings and therefore God is a bird no like These are metaphors, this is poetry, and to take the Bible seriously, to understand what the author is intending, is to understand poetry works differently than I'm describing as in a scientific textbook, the sun has legs and it's running. (laughs) Are there other ways that knowing genre or the kind of literature are are helpful or some guardrails or or ways that that turns out to uh, be really important?
0: I mean, not only, I think, whether or not to take it literally or figuratively, but, you know... It may, maybe this is just splitting hairs on, on that idea but like um to use one of those famous greek words that we learn in seminary exegesis mm-hmm. um you know poetry is so hard to translate from language to language oh okay because you know what rhymes in hebrew doesn't rhyme in english what a phrase in Hebrew might mean doesn't quite there's no way to translate that quite the same mm-hmm. way in English. And so we do our best to get close. Yeah. But you know, you you gotta take in that, remember, you know, it it's poetry. Mm-hmm. So not only do you not read it literally, but like um, I think especially the Song of Solomon and some sure. of those phrases sure. and things that get used throughout that book, um are definitely not meant to be literal by Uh any means sure um but are the way that you know in in ancient hebrew told a beautiful story about a a beautiful relationship between a man and a woman yeah um that just we can get the idea in english but it's never going to quite translate exactly So that we can understand it the way the the original readers would have read it
1: and and maybe along those lines too that acknowledges too that the 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 pieces we find in the scripture not only the old testament although sometimes it's especially clear there um but that you're you're reading things not just in different genres but from different cultures where the kinds of things that Mm -hmm. would have been important or would have come off as compliments are different right so like uh isn't there a line in song of solomon about how he praises his beloved because all her teeth are like paired uh, sheep or goats. They, mm-hmm. They're all there and they're all are match. I'm like, it's it's a lovely way of saying you're beautiful because you're not missing any teeth, um, which is uh, certainly could be an attractive feature in somebody. Um, you know, like right now in a modern culture, that feels like that's that's coming damning somebody with a faint praise. You're beautiful because you haven't lost any teeth. That feels like, is that the most you could mm-hmm. say? Um, but in a culture we're like, yeah, okay, that's a lovely thing to say about somebody. But knowing instead of going, this is the epitome of love poetry, there's nothing more beautiful than this. It's like, culturally, that would have hit in a way that it doesn't, it's it's not quite the same Mm -hmm. banger it is in English in the 21st century that it was back in 1000 BC.
0: And knowing that those cultures and where these texts come from, I think a lot of Jesus's parables deal with farming and agriculture because he lived in an agricultural society. Sure. The people would have gotten that automatically. Sure. They they would have heard about sheep and farmers and seeds and rain and and it would have made sense. Yeah. And at least for where I live currently, and and Steve, where you live, like we have farms around us, mm-hmm. so we we have an idea of that. And I don't know your area as well, Sarah, but I know you've lived in farm area. You you've lived in Iowa. You've lived around farms, so we kind of get that. But because none of us are farmers in our background, you know, we don't get it to the same sense that, again, somebody living in a very agricultural society where it's centered around that would be getting it.
1: And maybe in a similar way, uh, not just the agricultural background for so much of the ancient uh, scriptures, but also that an awful lot of the scriptures come from the vantage point of the experience of peasant people or people who Mm -hmm. are dominated by foreign empires and my social location as middle-class person in the superpower of the world I'm gonna read scriptures differently than uh first century or fifth century bc readers will have heard things uh and sometimes christians in america make the mistake of of reading things in ways that are rooting for the empire when the biblical text would have been like no down with the empire okay. um and that's another piece as well there's the the agricultural layer but also the, it, the there's a social class mm-hmm. piece going on and I, i've heard it said before that um All the New Testament and a large amount of the Old Testament are written from the perspective of being the dominated, uh, you know, conquered people and how to live when you aren't the ones in power. And so much of American Bible reading in the 21st century in a lot of places is uh, assuming that we are in the position of power and should have power and that we should be calling all the shots or something like that. Mm -hmm. And like, no, that's that's not the assumption of the biblical writers are there other things that you find helpful as rules of thumb for you when you're reading uh, that you would give as sort of general rules of thumb for, for how to, how to read the Bible wisely or, or with integrity?
0: So I mentioned a little bit ago at one of those Greek words, exegesis, and and we were talking beforehand about exegesis and eisegesis. And those are big Greek words that we know as religious professionals, Um, our audience might not know them. And so and correct me if, if I misspeak here or if you need to add something to my thought and understanding, exegesis is trying to get out the the, the true original meaning of the text, where isegesis is us reading our context into the text. And I and I think we kind of got into that about, you know, with twenty first century America, mm-hmm. you know, versus first century Israel, yeah, and, and so I, I try to do exegesis when reading, especially when preparing Bible studies and sermons, and try my best to leave my eisegesis and you know, what I want to read into the text mm-hmm. out of it.
1: I think that that's that's a good starting point. Is that question of am I wanting to read my own agenda into a text, or am I trying to get out of a text what it has to say? Um, I guess I want to ask: Do either of you think are there times where um I, I'm not trying to to make it what's the case for eisegesis, but are there times where our engagement with scripture is more here's what i'm here's what I'm dealing with in my life and I go to the scriptures and find guidance or is that never appropriate because I guess one of the dangers I could see if we hit the hammer of uh, exegesis only too loudly. As it can well, honestly, the Bible is n- never going to address questions like, "What college should I go to?" or "What should I study in life?" or "What kind of job should I have?" The Bible, no biblical writer is interested in giving me that advice. Mm-hmm. And yet I know lots of people who say things like, well, part of how I'm discerned is I read the scriptures and I pray and I listen and all that. And is that always wrong? Or are there ways that that can be helpful? Are there ways that can be done responsibly? How how do you address that? And people who want to read the scriptures in a devotional way of this might give me guidance in my life, even though clearly no biblical writer has an opinion on my life.
0: <laughs> and, and that's why I said, you know, I use my exegesis for Bible study and for sermon preparation. Okay, okay. Um, devotionally speaking, you know, seeking direction for myself, my church, working with others, then yeah, I said Jesus can kind of be helpful. Okay. For for years, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven was one of my, <laughs> it still is one of my yeah. favorite verses, and we've talked about this before. Yeah. Um, for I know the plans I have here declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Um. The way we read that in English, we assume, especially when we take it out of context, that it's written to me. Right. Um, But when you put it in context, it's written to Israel. Israel in exile. (laughs) Israel in exile and not just Jeremiah or or another individual in Israel, but Israel as a whole. Yeah. In exile. So if I'm preaching on it, I'm going to bring out the fact that it's it's a plural you, it's a y'all. Mm-hmm. And that it's Israel in exile. But if I'm reading it devotionally and being reminded like, okay, God, what, what's going on in my life? Mm. Oh, wait, God, you have plans for me.
1: Okay.
0: You know, plans not to, you know, to heart, to cross for me and give me a future and not to harm me. Mm-hmm. And so um, you can take the same text and use it both ways. You just mm-hmm. have to be careful. Eisegesis, I don't think is always bad. Okay. But it has to be used cautiously. Okay. You see, and I think we do eisegesis all the time. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh-huh.
2: um, so the way I was taught to preach was using the four page model. And I don't know if either of you were taught this in seminary, but it is, uh, Steve, yeah, you were because you probably have the same preaching professor. Um, but it is um, trouble in the text, like as in the scripture, trouble in the world grace in the text, grace in the world. And so it's this constant, you're taking the scripture that's assigned for that Sunday, because I think that this was especially taught for uh, lectionary preachers. Mm -hmm. Um, You take what the scripture that you're assigned for the Sunday, you read them and you find, you know, the troubling thing in it, And then you try to relate that to your context, your world. How is that similar to what your people who are hearing you preach? How is that similar to what they're going through? And then you go and find the grace in the text, you know, that answering grace, like not just some like uh, unrelated point, but like what's the answering related grace in the text? And then, what's the related answering grace in the world for your listeners? And I think that exercise is an exercise of eisegesis. I think it. it, it, it oh, go ahead. Yeah, it is just our own putting scripture within our own context, and I think that is a type of eisegesis, which can be rooted in exegesis, mm-hmm. but it is isogesis.
1: And and maybe that's it that that model in particular requires uh an honest amount of both that like to talk seriously about what's the trouble going on in this ancient text requires me to go what's going on in jeremiah's world that he is saying that you know that kind of thing and then the move to what's going on in my world yeah is a certain amount of creative theology a creative act which is eisegesis is reading into it what's going on in my world and trying to be fair and responsible and drawing those parallels um but yet that even the act of preaching requires some move to what, how, what does this mean for our lives? And the moment you do that, you are to some degree doing a reading into the text uh, rather than just gleaning things out. But that's, it's, it's, it's diff It's almost like we, we know when, when eisegesis is done, is done bad, you know, it when you see it, um, but doing it well and doing it right and where the line is between what's going on in the original context and what's going on in our world. That's, trickier to teach. It's almost something you have to learn by doing. And sometimes you screw it up. I remember this, this bad joke, a teacher of mine used to say in college, uh, when he was talking about the dangerous, the, the bad kind of Jesus, And he would say, you know, uh, and hopefully this is obviously wrong, uh, where the guy decides I'm just going to plop open my Bible and put my fingers on whatever sentence I find and if whatever I, that must be what God's telling me to do. And his finger lands on and Judas went out and hung himself. And he goes, well, that can't be right. I'll do it again. And he flips his Bible to another page and lands on Jesus saying, go and do likewise. And so like, obviously it's it's clearly bad Bible reading to just say, I'll plop the Bible open and wherever it lands, this must be talking to me and my situation. Nope, that's not responsible. It requires asking the deeper questions. What's going on here? What was the original author thinking about? And then to make the move, what might this mean in my situation? And what's out of bounds? What does it not mean? And together, that's a little bit of both. The exegesis, Pete, of what's going on in the original author's mind. And then anytime I make the move to, what does it mean for me? Unless I have a time machine and go back to ancient biblical times, I've got to ask the question, what does this mean in my time? And that's always a risk. It's always, there's a risk we could misapply it or get it wrong. And also there's the possibility that we won't be bold enough because we aren't willing to make that leap of, here's what it means in my time and my situation. So it seems like we've got at least a, a number of good, ground rules right for how we use the text and as we take a look in further conversations in this series and address other topics or areas in christianity we may from time to time you know Draw on Bible passages, and when we do, hopefully we'll be playing by our own rules, rules that you helped elaborate, like pay attention to context and culture of the original author, Jesus has to be a part of our interpretive work, and at least being honest with ourselves about what's there in the original text or author situation and what's our leap trying to make the move to what does this mean in our context and our time. So it seems like we've given ourselves plenty of work for next time. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's where we should leave things. And next time, uh, pick up with what happens when we do this wrong or badly uh, with how can scripture be used in ways that harm people. But that conversation is awaiting next time. So see us next time here on Crazy Faith
2: Talk.
0: See y'all. Bye.